0: Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. This talk is about a problem you likely have heard some mentions of in the news from time to time, human-made space debris. It's an issue that truly affects all of us on a civilizational scale, but unless there is a collision, it doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. Creon Levitt joins us today to give us a primer on space debris, how it's tracked, and one of the possible cascading failure scenarios that could actually trap humanity on Earth. Creon has decades of experience from his past work as a research scientist and engineer at NASA, and his current role as the Chief Technologist and Director of R&D at Planet. Among his many research interests, Creon has focused a portion of his career on orbital collisions. To understand why this is such an important issue, we must first understand the phenomenon known as the Kessler Syndrome. This refers to a catastrophic feedback loop where orbital spacecraft and ballistic space debris collide with each other, creating an exponential increase of debris until Earth's orbit is so crowded that we essentially lose access to launching space vehicles, not to mention use of essential technologies of modern life such as GPS, observation, and communication satellites. If we don't keep our orbital front yard clean, we could block ourselves out from exploring space for centuries or more. Creon doesn't think that Kessler Syndrome is a foregone conclusion. He'll explore not only the risks that space debris poses, but also a wide array of potential solutions. To make the threat of Kessler Syndrome clearer, we're also weaving in a portion of a talk from Long Now board member and futurist Peter Schwartz that explores a few other challenges that come with deep space exploration. Before we get to the chaotic world of space debris, a quick thank you. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Now, let's hear from Creon Levitt on Space Debris and the Threat of the Kessler Syndrome.
1: Uh, okay, I worked at NASA for decades, and for the last few years, I spent a lot of time on the space debris problem. I'll talk about why shortly. This is uh, my hand, and this is an experiment that was run at the NASA Johnson Space Flight Center Space Debris Division's Hypervelocity Impact Facility. and What we see here is an aluminum plate that has been impacted at orbital velocities by a small steel BB. This is what can happen at those velocities with collisions with even small objects. This is a slightly larger experiment. This is a satellite mock-up. This is typical, you know, small space vehicle, maybe a meter in length, maybe a little longer. And this was hypervelocity impact with a one-centimeter marble-sized aluminum sphere moving at the relative velocity that your average space collision in Earth orbit might happen. And then on the right is the resulting fragments that they reassembled after the uh, collision with the one marble-sized object. So small small objects can make a, a, a big mess. I got drawn into this because when the... Iridium satellite, which is a communication satellite, of which there are many in orbit, collided with a uh, defunct uh, Russian Cosmos satellite. I forget what its purpose was, but uh, we don't really know what happened. In fact, the collision wasn't even predicted, interestingly enough, even with all the tracking of space objects that have been done. In 2009, they collided, and a big debris cloud was tracked. But as near as we can tell, this is probably what happened in the collision, was the um, Iridium just nicked this, like, boom that was sticking out of the cosmos. Cosmos is the left-hand one. And then this cloud of particles came about. This was a simulation done by Lawrence Livermore Labs trying to sort of retrodict what actually happened there. And this was thousands of fragments, thousands of trackable-sized fragments. And, of course, every one of these fragments can potentially then collide with something else and make more fragments. Now, this fortunately has been relatively rare, The Gravity gravity movie was was showing a dramatization of something happening at the International Space Station, and this is a big concern. Like, we really don't want anything even remotely like that. We don't even want anything to happen to the International Space Station. We don't even want a little tiny hole in it, although we'll talk more about that in a minute. It's, It's truly an international project. In fact, one might argue that, you know, one of the reasons the US and Russia don't go to war is because there's US and Russian astronauts up on the space station at all times. And it's sort of a a soft power kind of detente, diplomacy, stabilization process politically. But technologically, it's it's an astonishing thing. There have been some debris strikes on the International Space Station that we know about. Uh, The Canadians have made big contributions to robotics on the space station. And so, uh, unfortunately, one of their robots has been damaged by a debris strike. Again, this was probably only like Maybe a few millimeters in size, the object that made that hole. We don't know. There's this beautiful thing on the International Space Station called the Coppola, which is this sort of picture window dome thing where you can, it has no real purpose other than people looking through it and taking pictures through it and taking pictures of it. And they lie there and they look down at the earth in this panoramic view. And it's a very beautiful thing. It's great that they made it. But what a lot of people don't know is on the outside of it, there are these shields that can be folded up. Actually, every time that they know that there's a substantial size piece of debris, and by substantial, I mean anything we can track, and by anything we can track in low Earth orbit, I mean anything that's about five centimeters in size or bigger. When they know that there's something five centimeters in size or bigger that is, um has a conjunction probability of more than, I don't know, one in 10,000 with the space station, they close these shields and they actually get ready in the various human capable vehicles that are on the space station to evacuate if a catastrophe happens. Here's some little tiny thing that hit one of the windows of the Coppola, didn't break it, but you know, all kinds of things up there. Uh, This is a a solar array uh, from the Hubble Space Telescope that was um, retrieved after nine years in orbit and brought back to Earth. This is definitely debris strikes. I don't know the size of these solar cells we're looking at. They're probably at least like 5 by 10 centimeters each of those things, maybe bigger. This drawing on the chalkboard, also shown here, is from the original paper in 1978 by Don Kessler and his associates. He was the man who essentially invented this field, or started thinking about the problem of space debris. And he started thinking about it in the 70s, and there had been no known space collisions at that time, he was just thinking, you know, what if we keep launching stuff into space and, you know, occasionally stuff blows up and occasionally pieces come off and there's going to be a probability that things could collide over time and create more pieces. And, and the idea is that if debris collisions produce more debris and produce more debris at a higher rate than it can be naturally removed or removed by humans, then you can end up with just a an impassable cloud around the earth and you can just not be able to launch anything into space, maybe for thousands of years even. So the Kessler syndrome is the idea that there's this runaway chain reaction and, and it just becomes, I don't wanna say uninhabitable, but, but sort of un, space becomes unusable, at least in near, near the Earth. He made this graph showing predicted cumulative numbers of collisions based on different assumptions about how many or uh, how many objects were launched each year. Now, I should point out that it's now the 2020s and we're launching, many thousands of objects per year, not just a thousand or so, like is shown here. I went, and I uh, the NASA Johnson Space Center has a whole debris office with, like, dozens of people in it who study this professionally for their whole careers. And they publish a newsletter, I think, quarterly. And one of the things the newsletter has, in addition to research, is um, it has discussions about various events that happen in orbit. And some are called collisions. And that's where they're pretty sure based on the tracking that something collided and other types of events are called fragmentations and fragmentations can happen for many reasons. Uh, One reason is something can explode like a fuel tank can get weakened if it's not empty and it's still pressurized and it's in orbit for a long time in and out of the sun. It can just crack and fragment and explode. Batteries can explode Unexplained fragmentations could be collisions with objects that are too small to be tracked, and unexplained fragmentations could even be anti-satellite weapons, possibly. So what I did was I took this original figure from this original paper by Kessler from 78, and I looked in all these reports from the Johnson Space Center, talking about the different events that have happened, collision events, fragmentation events, and I overlaid the cumulative number of events on Kessler's graphs. So in the solid orange circles are the collisions, and each time there's a collision, it goes up one more count. And these hollow orange circles are the collisions plus the unexplained fragmentation events. So what we see rather interestingly, and the the upper right hollow orange circle is literally off the chart, I mean, it's, it's a little bit off the chart, and uh, what we see is that it's tracking his predictions rather well. As I said, uh, JSC, you know, here, here we just see in 2020, they cataloged uh, five breakup events. Um, I don't know if they classify them as collisions or just breakups, fragmentations, I think these might have been all fragmentations. You can see some of these things that say satellite name are actually satellites, and some of them are, are third stages or tanks or covers and various, large pieces of junk that are up there now. Here's a graph that shows, this is again from JSC, it shows the total number of objects in space since the dawn of the space age, and uh, they're classified by by different types as you can see. The most important one is the total objects because when you're thinking about collisions, that's kind of what matters. And you'll see that there's those step functions in there, like the thing labeled one and two and three, And uh, one of those is the Iridium Cosmos collision. I mentioned that number one, the thing that kind of drew me and a bunch of other people into this field. It was not the first collision, we don't think, but it was the first one that produced a lot of debris. And then uh, two and three were anti-satellite tests, respectively uh, Chinese and Russian. And as you may know, the US recently announced a unilateral ban on anti-satellite weapons testing hopefully the rest of the world will, will follow suit because that's one of the most important things we could do, both for world st- stability and keeping the orbital environment safer in terms of debris. Uh, th- well, I remember I said there's, there's well, we can track down to about five centimeters, but we have done experiments where we point high-powered radars, they're called beam park experiments, because you park the radar beam, and you just point it at one spot, and as stuff go, goes, in orbit, you get these radar reflections. So by taking a narrow, really high-power pencil radar beam and, w- and seeing what comes back, you can get range and cross-section and get statistics on what's up there. You can't survey the whole sky this way, but you can kind of get the fluxes and make assumptions that they're uniform, perhaps. And what we see here, it's a log-log plot. You can see that the number of objects of smaller size, if you go to 10 times smaller objects, there's like roughly 10 times as many objects. So it's a simple power law. There are thousand times as much flux of millimeter-sized objects as there is of say, you know, larger objects. This is just saying that there's a lot of small stuff up there that we're not tracking. And that small stuff, as we saw from the beginning, could be kind of dangerous. Um, interestingly enough, these are not distributed equally in space, there are certain orbital altitudes that are much more congested. You can see up about 850 kilometers. There's a lot of congestion. At these lower altitudes, though, it's kind of lucky. One nice thing about really low altitudes, like down below 500, is that stuff just doesn't stay up very long. Atmospheric drag slows it down, and as it slows it down, the orbit gets even lower, and then the atmospheric drag gets even higher kind of gets exponentially higher as you go lower and pretty soon when you're down at um you know 400 kilometers you don't have long to live no matter unless you're very dense and heavy like if we took that uh, tungsten ball you know it might live a long time but but most satellites or debris is going to live a very short time what do we what can we do to reduce this problem and ensure that we can continue going into space and don't face like a debris minefield that's impassable, full of satellites and nuts and bolts and other junk. Well, uh, stop producing debris. is the first thing. So I should point out that the rules have gotten a lot more draconian, both the U.S. rules and the U.N. rules. And like, it used to be that you know, you could like have a lens cap go flying off of your telescope and nobody cared, and you could have you know explosive bolts send fragments everywhere when you were separating the rocket stage. And now all that stuff is uh, not allowed at all, and all but the most pariah nations abide by these conventions. You have to go through a whole bunch of things to show that you're not going to be producing debris, that stuff's not going to fall off your spacecraft, that stuff's not going to explode. We have to stop doing anti-satellite weapons tests, because in a sense, they're like designed to produce debris. And um, it's probably not a good idea. Another thing we can do is, you know, we can just slow down launching stuff and wait and wait for the atmosphere to clean stuff out. And that, as I said, works at at the lower altitudes. But unfortunately, at the higher altitudes, you know, a thousand kilometers and above, that stuff's going to be up there for hundreds or even thousands of years. And when you get up into, like, geo and the the higher orbits, they're going to be there basically forever from our point of view, even from the long now's point of view, you know, like millions of years, right? Another thing that helps us is... uh, The solar cycle, so the solar, the sun has like this seven year cycle or 14 year cycle, depending on how you wanna look at it. And it gets active and it gets inactive and it gets active and it gets inactive. And when it gets active, it it puts out a lot more radiation at certain wavelengths and they don't matter so much to us down here, hard to detect on the surface of the earth, but in the very upper atmosphere, uh, solar activity, particularly solar flares, those solar excursions make big changes in the extreme upper atmospheric density. They can change the temperature of the upper atmosphere and hence the density, they, like they puff up the atmosphere of the Earth and it gets way denser at like two, three, four, 500 kilometers even above the surface of the Earth when the sun gets active and that makes stuff get dragged down much faster because if there's more atmospheric density, it gets slowed down and then it slows down more and then it gets denser lower atmosphere and it burns up this is the solar cycle and the debris re-entries kind of superposed with each other so when the sun is active the red curve more debris re-enters so that's you know there's some cleaning that's going on naturally but but not enough so another thing we do is we restrict the lifetime of satellites and meaning so we don't want a bunch of dead satellites up there there are already too many and we really don't want dead satellites up there. So what does that mean? Well, you can never ensure that a satellite won't die and just remain in orbit as basically a big piece of junk. But what you can do is you can say you have to dispose of it after a certain number of years if it's still alive. So you have to have an engine on it with enough propellant to take it and re-enter into the Earth's atmosphere, or at the very least, put it into an orbit that nobody cares about. So those are disposal options. Another thing you can do is just fly it very low to begin with, and then you know it's going to have a very short lifetime, even if it dies. That's what we do at Planet Labs mostly, is we build satellites. We launch them into relatively low orbits. They're only designed to last, say, five years, because after five years, the technology is presumably much better, and we don't really want them anymore. So we just have them at a low enough orbit that after about five years, they re-enter and burn up. But that's not always been the case. If you're building a billion dollar satellite, you might want it to last a lot longer than five years. And therefore you, you have to be very careful and have some way to dispose of it. And unfortunately, the world's largest piece of space junk right now is a billion dollar satellite called Envisat that the European, European Space Agency sent up there. It's about the size of a school bus and it died. And it's totally dead. I mean, it's and it's just, it's up there and, these very large dead objects are in a sense the biggest threat because if something collides with them they can make a huge mess there's a lot of proposals also for going up and getting stuff out of orbit that's called active debris removal so the first thing that you can avoid you do to sort of avoid collisions at least for active satellites is have a traffic management system kind of like we do with air traffic management and you want to you want the satellites to. You want everybody to know where all the satellites are, and you want everything in an orderly pattern, so that collisions are very unlikely. This would be a typical distribution of satellites in a big constellation, like maybe Starlink or OneWeb or something like that. I mean, this is simplified, but a lot of satellites in a lot of different orbits, and it might look like a giant mess. And how could you uh, ever, you know, how could you hope to not have a collision with a constellation this dense? But the the issue is that if you look at it in a three-dimensional geometry, you can see that there's ways to kind of thread stuff through each other. Um, you can imagine this thing sort of fully populated with these orange dots. Like there could be thousands and thousands of them up there and if they're all choreographed just right, they can sort of do a dance. And one way to understand the dance is to map it out in, in other coordinate systems so that You know, like, instead of latitude and longitude on the Earth, you can kind of map it out in these grids or in toruses where you're using different mathematical functions. And then they turn into these regular square patterns. And in a sense, every satellite is just sitting in a box. Now, when you put it back onto the three dimensions of the sphere of the Earth, uh, it doesn't look like a box so much anymore. So here's, here's the Starlink constellation. And this is... We're mapping it out, not in latitude and longitude, or not in altitude and inclination, or any of the standard orbital elements. And what we see here is a bunch of Starlink satellites. And the ones that are in their assigned orbits are these pale gray dots. And then this, the brightly colored ones are the ones that have been recently launched. So the ones that have recently been launched are the ones that are moving. And once they get into their assigned positions, they turn, they turn gray. Each different launch is a different color. And you can see, as they get gray, they just drop onto this grid. And this, this means that even though they're all in or- orbit around the Earth in this complicated dance, in, their, in this special coordinate system, they're just lying on a grid. Uh, the diamond-shaped ones are defunct. Some of those defunct ones, they're, they're really defunct. Like, they have no control over them anymore. Um, but the point is that you can see these gray ones on the right slowing down, and now they're locked into their position. And now we're going to watch these blue once they slow down and they lock into their position and turn gray and you can see that they're slowly building up this grid and and then when you have this grid if everybody stays in their box once it's just a rigid grid and they're all up there and everybody stays in their little box there's not going to be any collisions in that constellation and so we could have boxes like that uh, globally you know for the entire world's satellites actually and we can have lots of satellites up there if everybody stays in their box and um, of course, this is complicated by the fact that you've got debris objects streaming through here who don't know about the boxes, right? But it's a start. So what do we do about these debris objects? So we can do active debris removal. You know everybody's got their favorite idea. Oh, we're gonna build a robot with claws and it's gonna grab stuff and then bring it back to Earth. Or we're gonna like, this is an actual, uh, an actual Satellite servicing mission, but satellite servicing and debris removal are very similar. You have to get into proximity of another satellite. You have to s- grab, grab it, you have to attach to it, and then you have to do something, either refuel it or bring it or, or bring it back to the atmosphere so it can burn up or move it to some graveyard orbit. But this is very similar to what you'd have to do if you were trying to bring a dead satellite back. Now the problem is, oftentimes debris objects and dead objects, they're tumbling makes it harder to get, get a hold of them so of course people have said oh well we'll just inflate like giant balloons and you know we'll like we'll like somehow stick it to a balloon or or may, or everyone thinks they're very clever why don't you just send up a net and the, I mean the thing to remember about this is these are objects in orbit and if you do this if you get something wrong you end up just creating more debris Like you can imagine this net gets tangled up and then, you know, now you've got an even worse problem, right, and now you've got an even bigger thing flying around there, or something accidentally, it gets tangled up and it hits something else. I mean, these, and also, by the way, all these kind of schemes like this, they also are like anti-satellite weapons in disguise. Because I could just as well use this to go take your satellite and de- and, and 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 remove it or or to cover it up or turn it off as I could to get out of p- take a piece of space junk out of orbit. Uh, you know, if something something is tumbling, you have to you have to. Uh, I don't know where people come up with these ideas, but I just collected as many as I could. Uh, you know, we're going to catch it with harpoons, um, and then drag it away. Now, this is actually this is a, this was. <laughs> a European space mission that got pretty far along the planning phase called E. D. Orbit. This thing on the right is that school bus sized, gigantic NVSAT dead uh, environmental satellite, and then the thing on the left was, going, was fully all designed and ready to go, while well, it wasn't built yet, and it was going to grab the NVSAT, which was not tumbling, I don't believe, and attach itself to the NVSAT, and then just de-boost the whole thing down into the atmosphere. And that got canceled, unfortunately, so that's NVSAT. Is still up there. But they are actually launch. This is going to launch in 2025. This is called Clear Space. The thing on the left is, is, is getting this medium-sized piece of junk that's known to be up there. And um, uh, Europe is spending 86 million euros on this mission to bring back this one piece of junk. So you can imagine a scenario where you remove the n largest pieces of junk from orbit every year. And so the question is, if you, and since the largest pieces of junk are, in a sense, the biggest threat because they'll produce the most additional junk if they get impacted, you might say, well, what would this have? What effect would this have on the overall growth of the debris population if we removed the n largest pieces from orbit? So since we have good information about much of what's up there, and um, and a lot of historical data, here we can see various growth scenarios for space debris this is assuming no additional anti-satellite weapons tests okay but this says if you just do business as usual you get the thick black line that's going up into the right the highest one and that's just using like debris remediation techniques and then if you use um if you really, if you add in ADRO 2 which is active debris removal of the two largest objects the two most dangerous objects per year uh, then you obviously get the dotted line, which is far less growth. And if you go to ADR5, that's the line that's almost flat going into the future. And that's if you remove the five worst offenders every year. So, And then those, the waviness of those lines is that solar cycle that I was talking about. So more stuff is going up there all the time, but more stuff is being cleaned out all the time, and you can balance it out. And then if you do a little active debris removal of just five objects per year, you can flatten this out. So that's kind of, that's pretty good news. Why not just send a giant laser up there and blast it and vaporize it? And it's like, yes, that was called Star Wars. That was like, that's called space weapons. And that is arguably, I mean, if you have megawatt class lasers in space, oh, they're just up there to sell, you know, mitigate debris. This is gonna be a hard sell. Ming the Merciless was the only one who was capable of building such lasers, as I understand it, ahead of his time, exactly. Um, And uh, that's the thing. These things are also weapons. Some colleagues and I at NASA came up with a thing we called light force, uh, which was a way to use relatively low power lasers to do space collision avoidance, not to blast things out of the sky or vaporize them. This was work that Will Marshall and I did back at NASA, and as well as a number of others whose names I shall Mention later. And the idea was you use a ground-based laser hooked up to a moderate-sized telescope, shown here in the center. And let's say you're tracking a piece of debris that can't maneuver on its own. And you have a prediction that it's going to collide with another piece of debris that can't maneuver on its own. Now, these are the kind of, in a way, the worst problems. Because first of all, there's arguably more debris than there is. Uh, non-debris up there. And the second is that debris in general, you know, debris can't maneuver. So there's no chance of somebody moving out of the way under their own power. So the question is, how do you prevent debris-debris collisions? And the idea is if you shine this laser through this telescope on a piece of debris, you're not going to vaporize it or anything like that. You're going to put a little bit of what's called radiation pressure on it. The kind of thing that spins those little solar spinny things in those evacuated bulbs and um, radiation pressure is a thing it actually you have to take the Sun's radiation pressure into account when you're calculating the trajectory of a satellite in orbit it's a slight perturbing force in addition to gravity and atmospheric drag so radiation pressure is a thing and it turns out that by using one of these industrial 10 kilowatt class lasers and a telescope of moderate aperture like a university class telescope like a one meter aperture telescope using that laser in that telescope and some additional hardware you can put enough light energy on a piece of debris that is equivalent to about what it would see in the sun, but you can put it either to slow it down in its orbit or to speed it up in its orbit, if you point it in the right direction at the right time, and you can perturb the trajectory of that object. That's what's shown here on the upper right of this diagram, is like the unperturbed trajectory without the laser engagement and the perturbed trajectory with the laser engagement. You only impart a few millimeters per second of delta v with each of these engagements but it turns out a few millimeters per second over the course of a few hours or days amounts to m- a lot of distance that you can perturb the end uh position of this object and so you can actually uh avoid collisions this way and the question is you know how, how 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 well does this actually work what do the numbers actually say how much is it going to cost so we made this proposal a whole bunch of organizations teamed up here's the picture of one of these lasers. It's about, I don't know how much these things cost, some fraction of a million dollars, I think, maybe less now, 10 kilowatts. That's about the size of a large fridge. Here's a one meter class telescope. That's also about a million bucks, maybe a little less. And here's a high power adaptive optic system. That's another thing you need for this. And then if you combine this stuff together, this is showing like one piece of debris. It'll make passes over this laser, and sometimes you'll be able to engage it for a short time, and sometimes you'll be able to engage it for a long time. And maybe since it's orbiting the Earth like roughly every 90 minutes, most stuff in the low Earth orbit is orbiting every 90 minutes, you would engage for maybe uh, 16 illuminations over the course of 24 hours. Some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. And you could end up perturbing the position of this object by engaging with the laser and just giving it a gentle little pushes. Uh, you could perturb it enough that, down the line, you've, you've altered its, its trajectory by hundreds or even thousands of meters. That's shown here, the perturbed versus unperturbed trajectory. And this is with actual physics in the model, OK? It turns out the, our Australian colleagues then actually went and kind of did this. They at least demoed it. They had the laser. They had the telescope. And they, they did some demos of this. So the, this was we did experiments at the Starfire uh, optical range. Here they are actually prototyping it on their optical bench. This is the high power adaptive optics thing. It, that's a technicality, but because of the atmosphere, you have to have some fancy corrective optics. And uh, there's the Australian facility, Mount Stromlo, wonderful people. So this works. I going to last, last thing I'm going to talk about is um, a, a debris mediation scheme by George Sarver from NASA Ames. This is brilliant. He came up with this thing. It, let's say you have like one of those swarms, like you saw in the, movie, the Gravity movie, where like, there's like a thousand nuts and bolts and little things all come in, because you know, maybe something fragmented, and it's, like a, it's sort of a jet. Anyway, it was like, well, how could you possibly remove debris like that? Like, you're not going to you know, do that with harpoons, right? So his scheme is, you launch a rocket, which is basically carrying a payload that's just a big tank of... of of liquid carbon dioxide. Anyway, you launch this thing into a retrograde orbit, meaning the opposite orbit. If you have this cloud of debris particles coming, you launch this tank of CO2 so that it's going to intersect this cloud. And you make it time it so that it's going to intersect it on the night side of the Earth. And then, just in time, the CO2 tank vents all of its CO2, which goes from liquid phase quickly to gas, and then it turns into crystals, dry ice crystals. It's on the night side of the earth. So these dry ice crystals just sit there. Imagine like this long contrail of dry ice crystals that's been precision laid out so that the debris cloud is going to pass right through it. And then the debris cloud... And then the the rocket kind of re-enters itself using its own jets of CO2, leaves this debris cloud contrail right in the path of the oncoming debris. And the oncoming debris comes and it just gets ablated by this cloud of dry ice crystals. All the nuts and bolts and everything slowed down, burned up. And then what happens? 20 minutes later, the Earth rotates, and all this is in the day side. And the crystals just sublime and instantly dissipate because they turn back into gas, which expands immediately. So I thought that's a brilliant scheme. Maybe we'll do that someday, real practical ones. I think I'm going to end it there. Thanks very much.
2: I really appreciate that you actually showed a hopeful view of space debris in this talk, which is very rare that we get to see. And when I visited you guys in South America, this is like maybe a couple of your uh, places, offices ago, but it was kind of stunning to me after going to a NASA launch and then showing up at Planet, there was, you know, you guys were tracking, at that time, hundreds of satellites from one screen in South the Market, um, and then going to, you know, NASA, where there are, like, hundreds of people tracking one thing. Um, but that, that kind of difference that's happening in the, um, now that we have uh, so many private efforts, how do they, ha- you mentioned this coordination thing. How how is the coordination happening both between international, secret things of military and less secret things and the private world?
1: Um, yeah, that was a lot of stuff in there. Um, <laughs> so let's let's talk about first. I mean, is this, there one database?
2: How does how does it work?
1: Uh, there's there's essentially one database. <sighs> no even that's complicated but everybody knows it's kind of like asking is there one um search engine you know what i mean like (laughs) there's several of them and most professionals know how to use multiple ones and that's not a huge issue um and there's ways to combine them to get higher accuracy fusion and all that stuff i want to give some credit to nasa and these kind of places look when I i love planet labs but when we have hundreds of when we have hundreds of satellites controlled by one person, these are like basically simple little webcams in space with some radios on board. When NASA has hundreds of people controlling something, it's like the space station or a Mars rover or something like this. It's like a whole other level of complexity and risk. I mean, if one of our, if one of our satellites goes out, it's no huge deal. If, if one of those Mars rovers goes out, it's like hundreds of careers and, and, and you know billions of dollars. So there's a reason that they... We do things differently. Uh, I have the highest respect for NASA in many ways, in spite of my snarky comments earlier.
2: And uh, one of the things that I don't think we talked about—you kind of showed it at the beginning—but like, what are the what are the velocities that we are talking about? Like you showed average the...
1: average average low Earth orbit collision velocity is uh, many kilometers per second uh,
2: in miles so, per hour. Uh,
1: tens of. Thousands of miles, I mean, it's like 10 times faster than a rifle bullet in general, so hypervelocity, like hypersonic.
2: And you mentioned one of those unpredicted uh, collisions that happened with the uh, Canada Arm, um, How and, and a few of those. Like, how, how many of those are we now seeing per year?
1: Well, uh, again, to see it, we have to either have astronauts up there noticing that there's a hole where there was not one before, or we have to see some event with a radar on earth and that means it's got to have big big fragments so we're only seeing right now as i said a fragmentations like from zero to three or four a year maybe five and but we don't really know this micro fragmentations could be happening more frequently
2: and we have a question from the internets and we're going to grab some questions here from the Audience, next as well. Um, is, there, is there a current curve that's heading us towards a Kessler syndrome? That if you if if left alone, where would we where would we be?
1: Uh, if left alone, like if, if we stopped. Uh, I mean, you stuff? showed
2: a curve that was going up that we were hoping to flatten right. of space debris. At what point does that curve hit Kessler?
1: Oh well, don't forget that curve. When I plotted those points on top of Kessler's thing, I mean, we were talking about, over the course of many decades, an aggregate of like 12 collisions. So we're not in like any sort of uh, horrible situation right now. Um, You'd have to extrapolate those curves much farther to have a real impenetrable wall of space debris in orbit around the Earth. Uh, The curves which showed those growth scenarios that were actually coming from the NASA debris office that show a more linear growth uh, scenario. That's I think more like what's in our near future and the question is are we just gonna let it get worse and worse or are we gonna flatten it out? It's not that much work to flatten it out. Uh, Is it gonna go nonlinear? It depends on your, kind of it depends on your time scale. Like almost almost any curve is linear if you zoom in far enough. Yes.
2: All right, do we have any questions? Uh, Short uh, questions? Charles. Let me repeat that just since we don't have a mic out there. So, given what's up there right now, what are the chances of a big, nasty collision? We've already had two that were maybe planned or were like the Chinese one and the Russian one, but something on the order of the gravity kind of collision.
1: This is very hard because this is kind of one of these low-probability, high-impact events. It's like a Poisson process. So, you know, it it's like if i don't know how to answer that the, the gravity thing was exaggerated and it it wouldn't really go like that but like what's the probability of a big object smashing into the space station that's very low because we know where the big objects are and we know where the space station is and we're going to move the space station out of the way okay but um but that iridium cosmos collision that kind of dragged me into this which produced thousands of fragments many of which are re-entered by now but um yeah, I think we can expect to see every few years, something like that, maybe bigger. It's a on process, so sometimes a lot of them come and then there's a big gap. Fair enough, other questions? Uh, Paulo?
2: So the question is, could you use any of these systems like the, what the laser system you mentioned, um, effectively to push something into a correlated orbit, um, and if it did happen, would anybody be able to detect that it was happening?
1: I think the answer is it would be very hard, and you could detect it, and it doesn't really matter because how would you even know if someone was nudging this debris, or if it was just, that was how it was headed? I mean, what I'm saying is that you'd see that there's a collision probability, and it's getting worse as time goes on, and so you'd make a maneuver. and. If you're just trying to make debris collide with other debris, that's just terrorism. That's the, like, you're not taking out anyone's asset there, you're just making a mess. Right, other questions?
2: Yeah, are the graphs including the particles that are too small to be tracked? Is that what you're asking? Gotcha, so they could have probabilities, but we're not tracking them. Is that what you're asking? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Some of the graphs showed particles that are smaller than, than the ones that are tracked because we do know something about what's up there of even a very small size. Like, like when, That's one of the reasons they brought back those panels from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's like, well, those things have been up there for nine years and you know they're going to have nine years worth of bombardment and then you can go look and see how many holes of a given size there are and you can at least know roughly the statistics of what's up there and how dangerous it is. Obviously, you're not tracking every single sand grain or BB in orbit, not yet. We could make radars that might be able to do that. But, um, so it's kind of a mixed bag. We know something about the statistics and distributions of the smaller objects and something about how dangerous they are, but we certainly don't know where everyone is at all times.
2: All right, so I'm gonna wrap this up and people, we're gonna stay here and people can ask more questions, but I wanna kind of bring this back to that original kind of question of threat models that we all have to hold in our heads. these days, um, is this question of, you know, where does this fit in your head in the world of something like climate change or an asteroid impact or some other kind of existential threat? Like, how do you put this into your...
1: Yeah, well, okay. I'll end on a controversial note. Climate change is not an existential threat. It's not an existential threat to the planet or even to humans. It it could be a serious... (laughs) problem that could set our civilization back maybe ir- irrevocably back even i mean so could the kessler syndrome it could lock us here on earth there are similarities i mean and and, and, the, and then neither is the kessler syndrome an existential threat like the worst it's going to do is you know keep us from going into space for a thousand years okay we would last a long time without ever going into space okay um but i'd like to and asteroid impacts i don't that's too far that's too different. I think the, there's great similarities and great differences between the space debris problem and the climate problem, and I'd like to focus uh they both seem similar because they're like global environmental problems, and it's a coordination problem because you have to try and get everybody to do something, and it's going to be very it's going to be somewhat expensive in the case of space debris and horrifically expensive in the case of. Uh, carbon emissions at least that part of climate change to mitigate in the standard stupid ways that they want to mitigate it <clears throat> i should be careful what i say but uh but there, there are similar problems in this way they are from the sky they're like involving the whole earth but they're also very different problems climate change and space debris i mean space debris is a simple problem first of all there's no question about are humans contributing to it or not like okay <laughs> <laughs> um, secondly, and how much are they there's no non anthropogenic right, problem yet. right exactly there's no right. it's all anthropogenic space degree pretty much and uh then there's um and then there's the uh, the issue of like how good are the models? well, like people argue about these climate models all the time it's it's like so hard i would. I'd venture it's almost impossible. It's not my field, but it's like I've done fluid dynamics and I've done chemistry, and I can tell you we can't even do tiny little airplanes and simple molecules very accurately. And the idea we're going to model the whole planet with the sun and the magnetosphere and the biosphere and the oceans and make predictions down to a fraction of a degree Celsius over the course of decades, I find that preposterous. And, and contrast that with space debris, it's like Newtonian orbits and st- collision statistics. There's really no, m- not much to argue about, right? Everyone, it's like the models are pretty simple. You can run them on a laptop. Well, I
2: like coming out of here thinking that space debris is less of a problem that I went going in. So thank you for that.
0: The danger of the Kessler syndrome is that we could essentially trap ourselves on Earth, foreclosing the possibility of using both low Earth orbit or sending spacecraft to further destinations. Right now, the possibility of deep space exploration may seem far-fetched, but when you get to a longer perspective of thousands of years, the possibility of mining asteroids, setting up research stations on other planets, and maybe even getting to a neighboring solar system are certainly options we would like to keep open as a species. To help us get a bit of perspective on how interstellar travel might happen over the course of the next few centuries, we're including a portion of a talk from futurist and long now board member Peter Schwartz that details a number of ways we can reach the stars.
3: Well, you know, we've all seen these amazing pictures of Mars. They're truly wonderful. But, you know, it's like living in a really arid Siberia, uh, you know, or Antarctica without ice. Um, so it is not a, a place you really want to spend much time. And maybe someday we'll terraform it, make it a bit more habitable. And we may explore some of the moons of Jupiter and. Uh, Saturn, and so on, but basically our neighborhood is pretty boring. Uh, And if we are really to uh, explore the universe, we are going to have to get to other stars. We're going to have to get to other star systems. And the distances are just simply almost insurmountable. And that's what the challenge is. But really, is it insurmountable? Well, I'm not so sure. Uh, And in fact, Jim found a remarkable little forecast, uh, a prediction. If you will Uh, and I will let Jim tell you about the prediction.
4: Now predictions are hard to do and most people are not willing to do them but Freeman Dyson did 45 years ago in his prescient article in Physics Today a, a, a renowned journal, my favorite magazine, edited at that time by Gloria uh, Lubkin, who is with us here. And the article is written by Freeman Dyson, who is also with us here. Now we'll tell you, Freeman, what you said then. <laughs> <laughs> I predict that in about 200 years from now, barring a catastrophe, the first interstellar voyages will begin. Well, we're almost <laughs> we're approaching uh, we're approaching a quarter of that time now. Dyson has doubled in age. and perhaps later today we might hear what he thinks about the matter now.
3: And, and we will in a few minutes. Uh, but, uh, I think it is actually quite significant that someone like Freeman Dyson, one of the great physicists of the last century, man of enormous intelligence and depth, uh, we've all had the pleasure of hearing him speak and reading his writing for many, many years, actually believes it's quite plausible, that uh, the ways of getting there are quite imaginable and that the path may not be quite as difficult as we thought. Uh, so. Uh, Having Freeman behind me, backing me, helps a lot, to be honest, that uh, you, you have someone like Freeman be, uh, uh, Dyson uh, uh, watching your back, you're in pretty good shape. Uh, so what's really hard here? What's the hard problem? Well, the problem is twofold. The first is uh, energy, uh, power. How do you power a vehicle to get to the stars? Um, and it is a really, really long way, and it's going to take an enormous amount of energy to get there. Uh, whatever means we use. It's going to take an enormous amount of energy. And I'll talk a little bit about what that might mean. And the second big problem is, as was suggested by the voyage length of the voyagers, the voyages are going to be long unless we have really amazing, faster-than-light travel if we're in the Star Trek world, which we'll come back to that in a little while. Uh, Unless we have that, these are going to be voyages of decades, centuries, and maybe even millennia. And so the question is, How do we keep people alive for all of that amount of time? You know, we know how to keep people alive for weeks, months, maybe even a year in space on the space station. But getting to planets is already difficult. Getting to stars is almost insurmountable. Uh, So those are the two big challenges, technically. How do you power a spaceship? And how uh, do you keep people alive? So we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the fundamental question of how. And then I want to go on to the question of why because it actually does matter why we want to go there. And then put all that together in a couple of several scenarios for how we might get there and what that might uh, tell us. So first of all, let's look at the question of can we. Um, And that is, how do we propel it? And let me say these slides are just kind of considered an outline of the argument. Well, the first answer is no, we can't. Um, And that is, uh, if you ask most scientists and engineers today, they would say, no, probably not going to happen. Uh, It's just technically too hard, uh, uh, too big, too costly, uh, and therefore probably not going to happen. Yes, we can imagine maybe getting around our solar system, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but moving across the vast interstellar distances, almost certainly not. And, you know, most scientists would say that. But a few are beginning to think about other possibilities. And so the second category that I have there is slow, and by slow, I mean less than the speed of light, uh, and that is fairly slow, a few tens of thousands of miles an hour. Think Voyager, uh, maybe a bit faster, a few hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. We haven't gotten to that, but maybe even if you have something accelerating for a long time, maybe even a million miles an hour might get us there. But all that is still relatively slow compared to the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second. Okay, So our... You know, our solar system is about something like 20 light hours across, okay? So to go the whole solar system, you know, from one side to the other, is maybe at the speed of light, roughly around 20 hours. Well, we're talking about four light years to the nearest star. So years versus hours, that's the kind of light, what light does for you. So almost everything below the speed of light is slow. Uh, Then there's the outlandish possibility. FTL stands for faster than light. Uh, We'll even come to that possibility. So the various scientists who spoke at this conference actually laid out a number of different possibilities for answering these questions in some detail. So let's look at, first of all, why it is really so hard. Now I said I worked on Apollo, and Jim uh, Benford is going to tell us why Apollo was wimpy.
4: This is a a sobering slide because you don't see things to scale very much, but that's Daedalus. Unmanned, now referred to as uncrewed, the uh, the uh, and um, going to uh, 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 compared to the Apollo, uh, which it was manned, of course, and it's absolutely enormous. The problems with Starships—they don't scale well, and we're talking about scaling to very very high speeds. They're they're very large, they're very expensive, they're very inefficient in terms of payload. The the uh, uh, Apollo. Uh, missions had about a three percent payload uh, fraction. That is, ninety-seven percent of the of the of the entire machine uh, was gone by the time uh, you got something on on target.
3: In fact, you saw uh, precisely that phenomenon in the video we saw earlier. You saw all those pieces of a Titan 3C launch vehicle falling away, then the upper stage boosters falling away, then the Voyager booster falling away, and then finally you had the actual Voyager that was left. And the problem is that these are chemical rockets, right? So chemical rockets use various forms of fuel, hydrazine or alcohol or kerosene or uh, hydrogen and oxygen, but basically it's a chemical reaction of some sort. Uh, And you are limited by the chemistry uh, of what's plausible there by way of combustion. So you'd have to carry an enormous amount of fuel if you wanted to fly for any distance. So chemical rockets are not going to get us to the stars. They probably are not even going to get us to the planets, but they certainly are not going to get us to the stars. So what lies beyond that? Well, today we have a source of power on Earth which generates an enormous amount of energy from a relatively small volume of fuel, and that's nuclear power. Um, And so, in fact, What we had was Jeff Landis from NASA talking about the possibilities for nuclear rockets.
5: But the nice thing about nuclear thermal rockets is this is not an imaginary technology. This is not view graphs. Uh, These are real. During the 1970s, 60s and 70s, when the NASA plan was that we go to the moon and then move on to Mars, uh, they said, well, we're going to have to develop these. There were several programs. Uh, One called NERVA, Nuclear Energy for Rocket Vehicle Applications, one called Rover. Uh, A little bit later, there was a follow-on project called Timberwind, uh, which in fact was mostly a a paper study. Uh, But they actually built and tested uh, these rocket engines. And here's several of these nuclear rocket engines that were built and tested uh, during the 1970s. Nuclear rocket could very well become the workhorse.
3: So this, this is how you would fly around the solar system with a nuclear rocket.
0: Before you go, a small ask of our listeners. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience, and so anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch the talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of both Creon Levitt and Peter Schwartz's talk. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.